did you did you get an allowance as a kid? I got ten dollars a week. Ten bucks a week? Did you get to keep all of that, or did you have to do anything with it? Like, did you have any rules that your parents gave you? Oh man, I don't know. I didn't have an allowance for very long. Once I got a job in high school, I stopped getting my allowance. Because I was thinking the other day, because my mom texted me with a gift idea that she wants like the kids to get her. And mm-hmm. I, for some reason, I just started thinking of like, man, like who gets to start telling me what to do with my money? <laughs> and then I thought about, for some reason, the allowance, because I used to get five bucks a week as a kid, mm. but we had to do $1 for tithe, okay, $2 for savings, okay, wow. and then $2 spending money. Ooh, $2 a week. $2 a week, baby. <laughs> and here's the thing. Here's what got me as I was thinking about my mother's Christmas gift, okay? I never saw any of that money. What do you mean? You never like, saw the $2? Never saw the $2. I never gave a dollar to tithe. I never put $2 in a savings account. Oh, I've not they seen just did it for this. you. I don't know. I mean, I have not seen this money at all. And now I'm kind of sitting there going, like, I feel like this has been 10, 15 years now. I'm thinking that there are hundreds of dollars out there that mm. I am owed. <laughs> so, no, I will not be getting my mom her Christmas gift. She will be giving me my savings account. Yeah, or you can ask for your savings account to buy your mom the gift. Uh, there it goes again. No there it goes money. again. You know what? That's yeah. why I need you. So really, I'll just text my mom saying you can buy it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that'll go over well. <laughs> Take it out of my allowance. Yeah. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome back to Cole and Zach in the Morning. This is episode 17, and we are rapidly approaching Thanksgiving. So, Zach, I wanted to ask you this. Are you prepared for the hard political conversations that come with family holidays? No, I am never prepared. And quite honestly, Jackie's not prepared because she avoids them with all cost. And Mm. I dive right into them. And so she hates it. She leaves the room. Whenever politics (laughs) get brought up, it doesn't even mean like it's not even like we're like five minutes in the conversation, then she'll leave. It'll be like someone will go. Hey, I watched the like Republican primary debate the other day and she'll just get up and walk out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley loves to bring it up. This is what she does is she brings up something controversial and then turns to me as if I'm going to stand in the gap and talk about this <laughs> controversial issue for her. <laughs> what are you guessing of this, Cole? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, it's like it's like, did you hear about the new Speaker of the House? Cole? <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't know. I find it kind of fun because let's be honest, when like Thanksgiving breaks can be quite a few days. And so you're with these mm-hmm. people a long time. So you've probably burned through the weather. You've burned through how bad Detroit sports usually do this year. They're doing better, which is really sad. And then like, so once you get through all of that, then what else do you do? You have to bring up politics. No, there are a million things that we could talk about besides politics. Here's the thing. I My uh, in-laws are all Michigan fans, University of Michigan mm-hmm. fans. I think instead of bringing up the Speaker of the House, if I really want to tickle the keys, I'll bring up the Harbaugh suspension. Oh, yeah. Oh, That'll yeah. I mean, get them going. <laughs> and I'll just sit there and go, you know what? I think I agree with it. That'll yeah. really put me outside the family will on that. Look, we started the, this podcast, and let's be honest, this is a platform. We have a platform to to talk and to spread our opinions into the ether, and yeah. yet there is nothing I feel less qualified to talk about than how to avoid p- political conversations at mm. family holidays, because I feel like I always end up in those conversations. Yeah, same here. I just have fun. I mean, like, why not? Like, 
I, I think there's a way to have them without it being tentious. I actually yeah. had a really good conversation with my grandparents at their, it was my grandma's like 80th birthday party. Uh, and they brought up like, yeah, the Republican primaries and um, who I'm voting for within it. And I just sit there and kind of like avoid that question. <laughs> and yeah. so we just kind of talked about that. And they're just like, we got to talk about like Reaganomics. We talked about the moral majority and how I think like, and all my opinions on that and how that's affected been included within the church and all that. And so we got to have a good conversation and I thought we were able to reach some good understanding in it. So mm-hmm. I think like setting space just to listen is helpful. Yeah. And there's, there's definitely value in talking about hard things, especially yeah. with people that you're close to who you can yeah. talk about those and it's not going to color their opinion of yeah. you. And I think it's honestly, I think it's training because if we, if we can't have hard conversations with the people that are close to us, how can we have hard conversations with people that we are not close to? For example, we can all have our own opinions on things like what is the best type of breakfast cereal? Yeah. And then there's facts, like the fact that you shouldn't have milk in your cereal. Huh. This this is such a throwback because I totally forgot that you did that. And I'm being transported back to like freshman year, <laughs> Chapman Hall, where you are pouring yourself a bowl of cereal with no milk in it. And I sit there and go, is that really a bowl of cereal? Or is that just like a, like a three-year-old snack in the middle of the afternoon? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who wants wet, soggy Cheerios, you know? I would say about 90% of the world. The other 10% haven't experienced cereal ever. So you're in the minority, Cole, and not in a good no. way. Not no, I think, we, you know, we've just all been indoctrinated to think that milk needs to go in the, in the cereal. Like when your mom poured you a bowl of cereal, she put milk in it. And so you grew up thinking this is the normal way of things. And yet here I am to show you a new way, a better way of having a glass of milk and a bowl of cereal. So when your mom taught you how to tie your shoes, did you grow up later and go, oh, mom, you were wrong. There is a better way to do it. Or did you stick to the traditional way because it's always been right? I don't know if there is a better way to tie your shoes. And if there is, exactly. I, I haven't found There's it. no yeah. better way to eat cereal than with milk <laughs> in a bowl with cereal. And that, that's where the conversation ends. I will change your mind, Cole. Okay, Zach. So one thing that keeps coming up in my circles is this idea of biblical inerrancy. Hmm. And I'm curious if you have a working definition of what biblical inerrancy means. Yeah, this is a big topic of conversation. The circles I run into also on Twitter, a lot of the theologians I follow, it tends to biblical interpretation kind of tends to come back to our view on biblical inerrancy. Basically, biblical inerrancy is it's a view of scripture that scripture is perfect and without error. And that's how we go about interpreting it. Yeah, yeah. Like inerrancy meaning without error. The Bible is yeah. without error. And so this is a theological position that the Bible is without error. Mm-hmm. And yet we often bring up inerrancy, and often evangelicals bring up inerrancy, and I don't think that that's what they mean. What they oh, mean so. is that the Bible is to be taken literally or that their interpretation of the Bible is without error. And we often fall into that trap, and I just, I don't think that that is how the Bible is meant to be used. I don't think that's the goal of Scripture, to be a literal document that is without error or fault. Yeah, I think there are two trains of thought here. One is, 
does the Bible have any errors? Like that's kind of part of the conversation when we think of biblical inerrancy. And a couple summers ago, I actually took uh, an Old Testament course uh, for my graduate degree. And I was actually looking up some of the homework assignments I had to do for just the first week of that class. Mm-hmm. And it was basically asking us to look at all of the contradictory scripture verses within the Old Testament. Um, and not, so I should say all of them, but a majority of them. So, for example, like one of the first things we looked at was Noah's Ark and the amount of animals that were on the ark. So mm-hmm. in one reading, it says, I mean, the classic, like what's the classic? It's two, it's a pair of every mm-hmm. animal. Well, a little bit later, it says seven pairs of every animal. And so it's like, how do we kind of wrestle with that? Um, another one was in Genesis 35, where was Benjamin born? Um, and in 16 through 19, it kind of like says that Benjamin was born in Bethel. Uh, but a little bit later, in chapter 35, it says he was born in Padan Aram. So it's like, how do we wrestle with these different scripture verses kind of conflicting and contradicting each other, each other a little bit? Um, even like later on, we talked about um, one set of scripture in Genesis talking about, I think it was like Joseph riding on a camel. But then we looked at like a historical background of camels in that area, and they weren't introduced until like a thousand years later in that area. So mm-hmm. it's like, how do we wrestle with these things? So there's, and that was the beginning of that course. And I was shook. I absolutely shook because <laughs> I didn't know that. But part of it's because what, what the teacher, the professor was trying to teach us was that Genesis had probably four different authors. Mm-hmm. But we like to think that Genesis was only written by Moses. And so that's why we see that Noah had was told to put two pa- to put a pair of each animal and then seven pairs later because it's probably two different authors reporting on that. That's why we see probably Benjamin born in this area versus this area is probably two different. That's why we see God being called Yahweh or Elohim in Genesis. That's two different words for God is probably two different authors for that. And so that's part of it is can there be er- actual error within the Bible? And there is. In the Old Testament study, there have been error in terms of like the recounting of specific events that occurred. And I mean, there are theologians that would argue away all of those anachronisms, right? That would would find ways to to smooth over those inconsistencies. But ultimately, as they're presented, they are incoherent. Mm -hmm. And so if we are to read the Bible literally, then we're going to come across these areas, like the two different people, David and the other guy who would have killed Goliath or the two creation stories in Genesis. Like there's, there's inconsistencies that if we were to try to read the Bible in a literal sense, as if the words on the text were written to us in the 21st century, I think we're missing the greater story of scripture. And I, so I was thinking about this, and one of the things that popped into my head was the Speaker of the House, when asked about his position um, on a topic, said, well, if you want to know my position on anything, just open the Bible and read the words on the page. Like, that's what my position is. Yeah. And it speaks to this idea, maybe not verbalized, that what is on the page is all that we need, and that we just need to literally interpret, and yet so much of Scripture is poetic, so much of it is an is apocalyptic. Like there there are different literary styles that conflict with this idea that we are supposed to read this text like it's a textbook. 
And I think that gets that to like the second thing. When I think of biblical inerrancy, the second thing that kind of comes to mind is, like you said, it's my way of interpreting it. And mm-hmm. it kind of gives an authority to scripture that scripture speaks into everything. And that's kind of where the speaker of the house is kind of getting at is that this text that was written thousands of years ago over the course of like 1500 years of script, like this is like the scripture spans a really long time yeah. and to sit there and go that this thing, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, this thing that Jesus said, you know, in the first century applies to a 21st century American political issue. That is just so wild to me. And I think when we think of biblical inerrancy, we start to think that it can start to, it can be a lens and give authority to scripture in just so many different areas that it was never meant to give authority to. And that's where, I mean, and we kind of come from, we, we don't kind of, we do come from a Wesleyan background of scripture. In preparation of this, when you texted me this morning, I was thinking, why is that so important to me? Part of the Wesleyan view of scripture is there's plenary inspiration, which means that Scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired with human authors. Like that is, it is inerrant only concerning the things within salvation. So Wesley was so focused on soteriology or what, what Scripture means for our salvation that the other things within Scripture, they don't have to be perfect, but the story of Scripture when it comes to God creating mankind, mankind falling, And then God having this master plan to save his creation again through his son, Jesus, and then restoring creation back to him through the death of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus, that those things are perfect. It's this overarching story, and we don't have to read the Bible in a flat way. It's easier to read it flatly, honestly, because we can sit there and go, oh, this verse says this, so I need to believe that. But when we read an overarching story, we have to do so much more work into understanding the themes of everything and then reading scripture within those themes to then understand and interpret it a lot better. Yeah, it's it's a it's confusing, I think, because we do believe that a random person walking through a desert could come across a Bible, pick mm-hmm. it up, and yeah. know the person of Jesus. Yeah. Through that text. And yet we simultaneously believe that without understanding the context Mm. of that text and being in a community of people who can interpret that text, that person in the middle of the the desert will have an incomplete view of the world of the Bible. And that's, I think, I think that's where the uncertainty comes in this is that tension between like, yes, we do believe that this is inspired text that speaks to who the person of Jesus is, and yet it is simultaneously written by humans in a historical cultural context who are speaking to their historical cultural context that maybe doesn't apply directly to our hyper-rational 21st century lives. And we have to understand like the creation of the, like the history of the creation of the Bible, of like the 66 books that we have, like that, those were meetings by the early church to put together those mm-hmm. texts and dis- and to put that in a canon and, and to decide, you know, what this is where we believe we can see that overarching story better. So there's there is already interpretive work that was done in the early church, and so there needs to be interpretive work that is being that that needs to be done now as well. Mm-hmm. And I wonder 
how often we forget that we enter the reading of scripture with presupposition, with already determined thoughts and backgrounds and feelings. Because I would challenge, I wonder if the Speaker of the House views politics through scripture or views scripture through politics. Hmm. And how many times do we really do the hard work to go, which one is making the decision here? Does this scripture support what I want it to say? Or am I being created and renewed as a, as a creature, the most high King through the good word of scripture? Like we're not, we're not demeaning the authority of scripture in this, but is that's what's shaping me as I enter politics. And then also do I do the hard work to know that, like we said, the Bible is not going to give an answer on everything mm-hmm. and that's okay. And that does not demean the Bible in any way. That's good. And I, I want to go back to something you said about how we read the text and how our view of inerrancy can shape the way that we read the text. So mm. are you searching through the Bible looking for an error? Are you searching mm. through the Bible looking for contradictions or looking to see, you know, the one plus one equals two version of of scripture of everything must make rational sense? Or are you looking through scripture to gain an understanding of who Jesus is, of the story of God's people? And I think we can apply this to Genesis, and I I think we should definitely at some point do a, a series on Genesis 1 and the creation stories in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But if we're looking at scripture in a literal sense, then what we're concerned with in that first Genesis story is, okay, let's make a checklist of what happened on day one, a checklist of what happened on day two, three, four, five, six, and then, okay, God rested on the seventh day. And is that what the writer is trying to communicate with us? Or is the writer trying to show us the plan of God to dwell with his people, to make a temple and then... As you build the temple, this cultural idea of the last thing you do to the temple is you put an image of the God in the temple. And here on the sixth day, God puts an image of himself in the form of humans in this temple creation that he has made. And all of that gets lost if we're concerned of what happened on the fifth day and what happened on the sixth day. And this all happened 6,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. All of that... All of that gets lost, all of that context that can not only color the way that we view Scripture, but can color the way that we view our relationship to Scripture. I think what's hard, when, when I've talked with people about biblical inerrancy, the question is always, well, if, part of, if there's error within the Bible, can we believe any of it? It's like a snowball effect where if one thing's wrong, is it all wrong? And I don't believe so. I mean, we are we are human. We understand what it's like to be human. We understand what it's like to be imperfect as humans. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to sit there and go, yeah, when they sat down to write scripture, inspired and God breathed, that there is error within it. When when the canon was being put together, that there might be there might be some error within it. But when it comes to who we're seeing Jesus as a person, we're seeing who the character of God is. That, there, that scripture is being tied together over and over, that it's backing each other up all the time. And that's a beautiful thing that we get to see and wrestle with. But when it comes to even this idea of error, the question is then, who gets to determine if it's an error or if it's not an error? Like, who gets to determine which town Benjamin was born in, actually, or mm-hmm. what the Jonah or the Noah story actually looked like? And who gets to determine that? And again, like, it's all a part of interpretive work 
and Wesley did a really cool thing where in, in his time, like there, everyone was wrestling with this idea of like sola scriptura, like it's just only scripture as the authority of our faith. And, and Wesley believed in that, but then he also added his twist to it of like, well, yeah, there's also our experience. There's also tradition within the church and there's also reasoning as well. And that, those might not overpower scripture, but as we are people reading scripture, as we are interpreting it ourselves, there's this, there's this idea of a double inspiration that the Holy Spirit inspired the people who are writing it and inspires the people who are reading it too. And that's where we start to see our experience within the scripture. But yet again, it was written in a context for a context and we have to do the hard work to know, does this, can this apply in the here and now? And I think the Holy Spirit breathes life into, the, into that all the time. Yeah. And I think we should be very clear here that mm-hmm. we agree that the Bible is inspired. Yeah. And that we are part of the intended audience oh, yeah. of the Bible. We do not believe that the Bible, as we interpret it, is mm-hmm. without error. As we translate it, is mm-hmm. without error. I think it's just quite as simple as this. Like we, like you said, we are humans. Humans are imperfect. Therefore, our interpretation of Scripture is going to be imperfect. And I think this allows us to extend grace to other denominational beliefs. And that, and we started with this, and I want to make sure we like hit on it again. It's when we talk about biblical inerrancy. It's I read this, so it's and I so it said this because this is what I think it said, and that's what I know it says. And so you can't think differently because this is exactly what the Bible says. And again, that just tends to be a really flat reading of scripture where we don't do work to see the overarching story. And I agree with you. Like we we're not demeaning the authority of scripture in any of this. We just know yeah, what it's like to be human. There's a book that I've read called The Bible Tells Me So. And there's a good quote early on in this book that I want to read. The author says in the Bible, We read encounters with God by ancient peoples in their time and place who are asking their questions and having the answers expressed to them with ideas and language that are familiar to them. Mm. Those encounters are authentic and real. And today, all of us in the modern age are on a journey of faith to encounter God from our point of view. We meet God today just as the ancient peoples defined by our moments, our human drama, who and where we are. We ask our questions of God in our time and our place and languages and ideas that are familiar to us, just like the authors and the ancient audience of the Bible. And so the Bible doesn't have to be this literal translation of historical events, a textbook for being a Christian, for example, but instead it preserves the ancient journey of faith molds us for our own journeys Mm. as we recognize something of ourselves in the struggles, joys, triumphs, confusions, and despairs of those biblical authors. Mm. That was kind of paraphrased, and in the middle there I added some of my own language. But (laughs) I think that idea is great. Like, there's not a perfect answer to this question of what is literal and what is metaphorical and poetic and apocalyptic. Like, there's different forms of scriptural texts. But ultimately, what the Bible invites us to do is come along in that ancient journey of faith and to find ourselves in the stories of the biblical authors, recognizing that who they are writing to is the people around them. 
And yet how amazing is it that thousands of years later, we can still find ourselves on that journey of faith. Yeah. Oh man, that's, that's really good. And I think it's important to talk about reading scripture within community. That part of this process of wrestling with biblical interpretation is not doing that in a silo and not doing that in our own vacuum, but that we can do that with other people. And that's why I, that's why I think preaching on Sunday mornings is so beautiful because it's someone taking a text that again, was God breathing, God inspired and written for people or describing a people or whatever it was. And then being able to take that and go, Hey, church community, this applies to us too, or we can learn from this, or we can live in this, or we get to know Jesus more or more fully in this. And I absolutely love that idea that like you said that the Holy Spirit can still use that in our context. And it's okay if the Bible isn't perfect. That's exactly the heart of what faith is. It's knowing that this Jesus that talks about this God that it talks about, this Holy Spirit that inspired it and is inspiring me as I read through it is good, is right, is perfect. And will keep, and will keep revealing himself to me in the current time as I stay faithful to scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen to that. We often, I think, look to inerrancy to find some kind of solid foundation for our faith to this idea that, you know, it'd be a lot easier if the Bible was just a list of facts and those historical facts lined up with everything that we know about history, and there were no contradictions between these stories and anything that we can find outside of Scripture. And yet we live in a world where that's not true. And yet we can find that same foundation, not in the inerrancy of Scripture, Mm -hmm. but in the inspiration of Scripture. Well, thank you for tuning in to Cole and Zach in the morning. We are so glad that you could join us this week. We would love to hear from you about your interactions with Scripture and with this idea of biblical inerrancy. Any feedback or comments you have or suggestions for how we can keep this dialogue going in the future. Reach out to us at our website, colonzachinthemorning.com, or you can also find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if we don't hear from you, have a great week. See you, everyone.